G'day, humans. Welcome to the show that doesn't deal in absolutes, that doesn't deal in blacks and whites. So many shows, so many politicians, so many commentators, so much of your social media feed expects either your agreement or disagreement, either your furious love or your furious anger. I do not. I ask only that we give each other the benefit of the doubt that we wrestle with ideas we reject as well as those we think are right. Let's escape the dogmas of conventional wisdom. Let's have conversations that straddle the cultural divide and make us all just a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, if you're a fan of one of the world's most popular political podcasts, the Slate Political Gab Fest, then today's guest needs no introduction. If you're not a fan of that podcast, you should be. Uh, David Plotz, Emily Bazelon, and CBS's John Dickerson sit down, and they basically had the idea of doing a political podcast that was a bit like the green room at one of the Sunday morning political shows before or after the actual show, where people really say what they believe instead of what they're supposed to say in sound bites for the mass media consumption. And uh, that's always been Plotzi's way. Uh, I knew David somewhat when I was living in New York City. Um, he actually was my first guest on my old, uh, now defunct podcast, We the People Live, after the election of Donald Trump. He and I sat down and prognosticated about what could be. Take a listen to some of that exchange. You're pointing to the big, to the elephant in the room here, which is the extent to which Trump is tameable, right? I mean, what you're saying, what you're articulating is a, is a pragmatic vision of the, of the Trump, of the, of the Republicans who are, or conservatives well, who were flirtatious with Trump on the basis of the fact that they were going to be able to to, to regard yeah. him as a, as, a, as a willing partner. But if, I mean, Andrew Sullivan makes the point that if they haven't been able to, been willing or able to control him up until now, there's no reason to be optimistic that the cha- he's going to give a shit what the Chamber of Commerce thinks about tariffs. But it's not that so much as I think Trump, so, so the two things are at war in Trump. And one is this untamability and kind of the narcissistic, I'm going to do whatever I want. And the other is the laziness. That he's not willing. He actually doesn't want to do any work. He he wants to he wants to appear in public and be grandiose and make massive pronouncements and project power. But he doesn't want to actually do any of the hard work of governing and making decisions. That's that's not. He's not interested in that. There's that amazing anecdote in one of the stories about Trump from earlier this year when he was reached out. Um, uh, he reached out to uh, Kasich. One who I forget who reached out to him. A campaign manager, I think, Manafort maybe, reached out to Kasich and, and said, would you like to be the vice president? And Kasich said, uh, not really. But And Manafort said, well, you know, you'll, you'll – this goes back to my joke at the beginning. You'll be in charge of uh, domestic policy and foreign yeah, yeah, policy. Yeah, Kasich and, was like, what am I going to be yeah. – what, what, what jurisdiction am I going to have? And so then Kasich said, well, what is Trump going to do? And, and, and the person said, he's going to make America great again. Yeah. So Trump doesn't actually – so, so if you if you begin with the premise that Trump doesn't actually want to do the work, then it becomes who is going to do the work, and if it if the people doing the work in the Trump administration are basically very right wing conservative politicians and and their uh, their minions, then you can sort of predict it's going to be a, it's mm. going to be not that different from what a Ted Cruz administration was, and somewhat more right wing than what a George W. Bush administration was, but not massively radically different. That's an interesting point, and and, I, and this is this kind of. There's one of my big concerns here is that 
take George W. Bush as an example. There's no, I don't believe that we would have had an Iraq war if it was just up to George W. Bush operating in a vacuum, right? I mean, he, he was not an experienced foreign policy thinker, and the people he surrounded himself with were experienced foreign policy thinkers. Cheney and Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld had spent every year since the original Gulf War writing op-eds in the National Review about how it was a mistake not to go all the way to Baghdad and finish the job. So when they saw an opportunity and a country in crisis and a, a Middle East that had obviously crossed, crossed a threshold, they took what they'd always wanted to do and they enacted it. My worry is who does Trump then surround himself with on the issue of energy policy, which he doesn't give a shit about, on the issue of Supreme Court nom nominees, which he probably doesn't oh. really give a shit about, on the issue of foreign policy, right. which he probably doesn't really give a shit about. I mean, he's not a policy wonk. He right. doesn't care about the details, as you say. So that team, if, if that team is Giuliani, Chris Christie, that's as terrifying as Trump just winging it. I don't know about that. I just, I, I think that, that, that most people, and I think even Giuliani and Christie and Gingrich and, and, uh, and but Steve Bannon, I would put in a different category. But the, the the politicians who are allied with Trump are loose cannons, but they're more or less more or less uh, move in the world of right wing politics, and and so they are going to pursue policies on energy. The policies will be terrible. They're definitely going to be terrible. Uh, on the Supreme Court, the nominees will be terrible, horrible right-wing conservative judges, no doubt. But I don't. I guess I just don't think. I don't think that that Trump is going to. I don't for, foresee a, um, a a change on. I don't see a, 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 a like a, a massive change in the nature of what government is and how it operates from him. I think he'll he, one thing I, I guess one thing that will change is that he lies and that he will use the uh, institutions of government to create lies. Um, and so there, the the government which we rely on for trusted information, for facts, for uh, careful analysis of the economy and seeing what work and what, what isn't, uh, for counting things correctly, that will no longer become trustworthy. That's going to be terrible. There are all sorts of Things they won't, for political reasons, they won't allow research on climate change, presumably. There'll be things that they just stop doing, which are important information gathering things. But I don't, I, I just don't, I don't think he's going to take us into a massive war anywhere. I don't think he's going to launch nukes. Uh, no, I agree. I agree. And so I guess, yeah, as you say that, what occurs to me is that it's probably worth being, um, it's probably worth not conflating into one big bucket all of the different s spheres of influence and the and the risks that they entail, right? Because there are some areas of government control over which the executive has power which are predictable. And, w and you're right. On energy policy, to take just the first one I pulled out of my ass, there's not a huge amount that you can do wrong. I mean, you can just be predictably irresponsible right. on, on the climate yeah, which, crisis. Right, so that's what he'll and be. Pre, yeah. yeah. And, yeah there'll be pipelines. They're going to be digging yeah, pipelines. That's right. There's going to be pipelines with, to this with office, the, with, the ex <laughs> with the exception of a big oil spill or something, you can't really totally fuck up everything on the basis of energy policy uh, other than to the extent that you, you uh, encourage climate change. Then there are some areas where there's a lot more uncertainty. So... If you think about the NATO security guarantee right. and our position towards Russia, for example, you know, the, the, as a non-American, I care deeply about America being the power that it upholds the global security guarantee. And that, that doesn't mean what a lot of critics 
of this perspective, a lot of American critics often think it does, which is, why do we have to be the world's policemen? Why is it always our job to put out all the fires? Why, why can't other countries deal with their own shit? I, under, I, I understand that. But fundamentally, even if you don't enact the power, that power has to be there as an unstated bedrock of, right. of international right. diplomacy in order to sustain the liberal democracy that has been sustained globally since the Second World War. And he has no interest in that and no understanding, I don't think, of that. So, and, and but, no I, one, but I think, and, but again, that goes to another laziness. I don't think he gives a shit about it. I don't think it's a major issue for him. I think he said all that stuff about NATO and never thought about it and then will never think about it again. And it's not important to him. And so the bigger he, question is, is are the, the kind of generals and the, the, the Defense Department or, uh, folks that he appoints – are they people who don't believe in the NATO security guarantee? And no, it's probably going to be neocons who love the NATO security guarantee and are going to, you know, just want us to to. Uh, they're going to be fine with it. They're just going to want to build but the military like crazy. This comes down to a question of whether or not his temperament, and that's an overused word in the campaign. But like, what you need from a president is is a constitution that. I think, veers towards de-escalation and not taking things personally and not being reactive and not putting your foot in it and not being easily manipulated, right? Right. And in a world in which there are lots of complicated, multipolar dynamics going on between Assad and Putin and China and Korea and Japan, you know, the idea... Putin is playing a game of three-dimensional chess out there with the United States. And I've even been critical of the Obama administration for playing a game of checkers, in, on Syria and on Russia. I mean, the, str- the strategic thinking and cool-headedness that you want from a commander-in-chief is going to be lacking in the next That's, president. That is absolutely the case. That, that is the number one worry. And, uh, and I think you can, you can see that both in the sort of longer-term strategic stuff uh, in the Middle East uh, uh, or other parts of the world in, in East Asia. And you can also imagine what it might be like in a, a moment of of a, a, an ISIS attack on the United States, or some 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 crisis, some some security crisis, which has a domestic element, where the kind of uh, excessive, un, unbounded, un, incoherent attack, uh, incoherent response that he might make that would that would violate norms, that would step on the Constitution, even with George W. Bush after nine eleven. Uh, he did what he did. You know, we we didn't we didn't throw thousands of Americans into jail. There were no detention camps uh, set up outside of uh, Poughkeepsie for for Americans to to be you know herded into, and for Amer- American Muslims weren't rounded up and en masse. And a Trump a Trump crisis, you, that kind of thing, where the executive can act autonomously and with authority is. It's scary. And yeah. I mean, imagine if there were black riots. Imagine if there was another Ferguson and instead of trying to placate, he came out and used that footage and used his appearances on Fox News to for, in politically expedient ways and, and crises got exacerbated instead of... I don't know. I can... Again, I'm sort of collapsing and conflating two separate things. One is the domestic question of whether or not he has authoritarian tendencies and would do things like, you know, I mean, I think it's a bit far-fetched to imagine that he would round people up and put them into camps, but you can imagine him uh, consistently opting for expedient ways to use divisiveness to entrench his power and his popularity and to scapegoat others and to never make it about being his fault because, you know, he's not not constitutionally capable of saying that he screwed up or of even believing that he's he's screwed up. So you can imagine things getting skewed that way domestically. But really, for me, 
as a non-American, the fact that 5% of the population of the world gets to vote and on, on policies that have massive implications for the remaining 95%, and that of those 5%, we're really only talking about voters in the Rust Belt. I mean, the idea that 52% of voters in Michigan and Wisconsin are the people who are deciding the impact that climate change will have on Bangladeshi farmers and the impact that Putin will have on Estonian free speech activists is weird. Well... Sure, but on the other hand, there are 1.3 billion people in China and nobody – who decides that? <laughs> you know, 47 yeah, people in a central committee Yeah, we don't look that. to China as being, a, as being an example of the kind of governance that we'd want to emulate. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. I, I, I think we – look, this is an election that went horribly awry and it's terrible and we've chosen the probably literally one of the worst – hundred people in the entire country to be president. <laughs> so that was David Plotz and me right in the wake of Donald Trump having been elected. We allude to that a little bit uh, on on this podcast. But if you want to hear that whole thing, it's a fascinating uh, walk back in time into the headspace of a couple of moderately intelligent uh, analysts of American culture and politics right after that political earthquake. I'm going to release that to subscribers. So if you are a subscriber, uh, then you will get that as, uh, as an additional piece of, uh, of bonus content. If you're not a subscriber, this is one more reason why you should subscribe. Um, David now is the founder and CEO of a local news podcast network called CityCast. You'll hear a little bit more about that, but really the, I mean, the crowning achievement of his career, what brought him to everybody's attention was when he was the editor of Slate. Uh, not just as a performer on the Slate Political Gab Fest, but from 2008 to 2014. He was uh, the editor of Slate magazine, which was a real standout publication at the time for taking an unexpected angle on big news issues. For You never quite knew where they were going to come from. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, you sort of know, you can kind of predict where the New York Times is going to stand on social, cultural, political issues. You never quite could with Slate. That's changed since he left, but it's largely to his credit that the place was such an exciting and energetic and invigorating uh, place to read and, uh, and to work. This is a conversation that wanders all over the bloody map. I mean, if you don't like it 10 minutes in, you're never going to like it because it's just him and me shooting the shit about the things that we think are important, the pandemic, uh, how we should all talk to each other, the role of podcasting, whether or not our heads are too absorbed in national and international politics and not enough in our daily lives. Uh, this is a conversation between two friends. I loved it. I hope you do with the one and only David Plotz. Is that early? Well, I mean, it's early for work. It's not <laughs> early in life. What time? What time do you? What time do you work? Uh, my show's on from twelve thirty to three thirty in the afternoon. So we have a production meeting at nine fifteen. So I get in about eight thirty, eight forty-five. Hmm. That's not early. My favorite uh, podcast is this soccer football podcast. Um, mm. It's about the Premier League, which is done by this guy. It's done by people in England, but then the host moved to Australia, and so he's he does it and he does it all the time, and I just don't even understand what their taping schedule must be like. It must be wild. Yeah, I mean there are there's like a brief window in which it's fine, and then there are lots of windows in which it's not. That's been one of the downsides of moving to the other side of the world. Um, 
But aren't you from the other side of the world? <laughs> Touche. Yeah, but I spent most of my adult life in New York. I was there for 12 years, and I only came back here in uh, 2017. Oh. Mm. Um, am I right in remembering that we did a podcast right after Trump was elected in, you are. in, in New York? Yeah. You are. You were my first guest after, after the election. Oh, my gosh. I would not want to listen back to whatever I said then. It's 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 amazing. I have I didn't I listened to it about about a year before Trump left office, about like three years after we did it, and it, it aged pretty well. I think the main concerns were still. I mean, the one thing I felt was, thank God we weren't right. Like, thank mm. God to some extent he was more incompetent than we'd feared, and the the structures kind of creakily held better than we might have thought i think mostly that he was just incompetent he was he was just less interested than we feared he might have been in achieving the things that he could have yeah i don't know um age i don't know uh okay i don't even know what we're talking about i know what we're doing i'm just here i just click the link thank you click a link and go well i don't do a big intro and i don't do it we just can sort of wander into it but i mean the main thing that uh, I think you'll have an interesting perspective of is <laughs> a the difference in the world between then and, and now, and b what's happened to our conversations. I mean, as someone who who runs a podcast network that focuses on like actual news and like local issues and stuff like that, how we how we can best talk to each other in the twenty first century. But we don't have to get that gra- that big and grand yet. Um, how long on, are we talking for, by the way? Oh, like I go for about an hour, and then. Uh, there's a little thing that we do at the end for our subscribers uh, called first date questions, where I uh, pepper you with quick raw shark questions about your life. Okay. Um, but I'll have you out by the top of the hour, the top of the next hour. Is that okay? Wait by by nine. So it's now five thirty my time. Yeah. You'll have me out by when do you think? Seven. Okay. If we can do six forty-five, it would be even Let's better. Forty-five. Uh, for you, but, anything, David. Okay. Uh, um, what do you remember of, uh, of those early days after Trump was elected? Have we started? Are we going? Yeah. We're not. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, it was all a fever dream. I remember very little. I remember election night in the sense that I was at a live podcast taping where everyone at that taping expected it was a live show and everyone expected it to be this triumphant experience. And the, watching that room get darker and darker and sadder and more and more uh, catastro- catastrophic was one of the truly um, gripping and depressing nights of my life. I, there was a couple of people I met that night. One, one of my podcast heroes was also on this live show and she and I met for the first time. And at the end of the night, I remember we said to each other, basically, it was great meeting you. I hope I never see you again. This was so painful. <laughs> and were you? I rem- so I was there at that at that thing with Grant, my producer, who were, who you knew as well. And we were. Were you on stage? <clears throat> I was on stage. I was on stage before Trump's victory became clear. I was on stage right. in the early part of the evening when it was still ha ha laugh laugh play on the couch, potter around. Uh, I had let I my part was over by the time it was clear that he was going to win. Right, and where were you? Were you in the crowd? I was in the crowd. I was in, or I was backstage, just sitting there, 
talking to to various people um and and just watching in horror as mike pesca tried to uh, uh make make lemonade out of the world's biggest lemon why hadn't there been preparations for the for that possibility yeah great question uh great question i think there was a real uh misapprehension about how accurate polls were i don't think people recognized that there was a possibility of this just enormous polling error as related to particular groups uh, sort of white white um non-college educated voters who turned out and voted even, even the polling though, david like i, I mean five the point was Go was ahead. saying that there was a 20% chance that he would win. Like a 20% chance, you know, if I tell you you're going to be doing a big show <laughs> and there's a an 80% chance of this but a 20% chance of that, you'd go, oh, well, we'd better cover the 20% base. Yeah. Uh, and But I, it was it was like a I, cognitive I, thing that we couldn't put our heads, like we, weren't, we wouldn't, would not allow ourselves to acknowledge that 20% is not, is not nothing. Yes. I mean, it was... I, ca- I cannot cast myself back to that mindset at that moment, so I don't remember exactly what was going on, and I was not the person planning the show, so I don't even remember that, uh, whether there was a discussion. But no, you're right. It was. Do you think it was a cognitive failure of refusing to be able to look it in the face, or do you think it was just such confidence? I think there was this tremendous confidence coming out of the o- Obama years, which perceived by by people on my set as having been a very successful presidency and oh this historic historic black president to be followed by historic woman president and uh, of course this 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 guy's such a clown and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily an a, a fear of looking at it it was a, it was worse than that it was a negligence it was just sort of like oh ha, ha, ha. couldn't mm. possibly ha ha yeah, I don't think I agree. I don't think it was a fear. I don't think that we thought, oh, he might win, but we're we're too, you know, we're too cowardly to confront it or something. But I think almost like September tenth, two thousand and one, it was just not part of our worldview as being a possible thing. Like it was like this isn't that's not the way the world works. They might say it's twenty percent chance, but in reality, we don't live in that world where hucksters, you know, and right. and obvious charlatans. Uh, become president of the United States. Like that's not the kind of country that America is. That's not the kind of world that we live in. We live in a world in which we've had this, uh, this uh, you know, very heartfelt and eloquent and articulate and intelligent president for eight years. And, and you know, now that we're going to have the first female president and we're on this little choo-choo train of history. Uh, and we just, it, it's amazing how naive we can be, I guess, about, yes. about what's coming. What do yes. you think, What do you think the next thing might be like that? Well, it's, I I was thinking about this the other day. How how in a relatively short time in my in the in the lifetime of of my oldest child, so from two thousand one until today, we have lived through. I think in in nine eleven, in uh, Trump's election, in COVID, and in the Ukraine invasion, which I think is hugely important. These four kind of epochal, and and then also it wasn't a single event, but it will, in the long course of history, it will be seen as a single event. The, this tremendous rise of China as a global power. These, in a way, five world-changing events, and all of them, um, all of them, with maybe the possible exception of the rise of China, have come at, at, 
at a tremendous surprise to all of us. Mm. And, and so I am going to try to be, I mean, I'm a person who likes to, to speculate and stuff, but I'm gonna try to be humble because I didn't see any of this other thing, these other things coming. So I'm not sure why I would think I would see the next one coming. Yeah. I'd add another one to that list, which is social media, which will also be looked back on as single thing but has happened yes upon a good slope. point good one good one good one like not recognizing just how right how that 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 moment of of switch from uh from utopianism around it yeah to exactly. oh my gosh this is a tool of of social devastation uh, a tool for authoritarian control and a tool for poisoning us yeah yeah I mean, yeah. as recently as five years ago, you know, I was, when HuffPost Live was collapsing and I was getting out of Dodge and uh, moving to Australia, I would still have said that social media is, is largely a force for the democratization of information in a good way and that uh, the ability of people to talk to each other is going to foster a world of greater understanding. And I mean, that was the whole premise of things like HuffPost Live, like, right, yeah. you know, communication is going to be more horizontal. It's going to be more egalitarian. It's not going to be top down anymore. You're not going to have to sit at home and listen to a straight white man bark the news at you at 6.30 p.m. every evening. You know, you're going to be able to talk to people in real time in Saudi Arabia, and that's going to be a liberating force. And that just seems so naive now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, you ever, do you know this book? I was I, I used to work with this guy Will Dobson, who uh, is a he was a he was Slate's political editor. And then yeah, I know NPR. Will's name. Yeah, and and he wrote this book called The Dictator's Learning Curve. Right. Um, yeah. And it was all and it's really prescient because he wrote it ten years ago now, and it was just about how oh you think that because because you've heard about the Arab Spring and you've heard that you know someone tweeted something and that caused a protest in Tunisia. You think that these things are good for you, but actually watch what happens. Watch how these are going to be taken and used for authoritarian control, which is different than this point about it poisons all of us, even those mm. of us who are not living with authoritarians. But the mm. recognition that actually that that the control over these information sources is is uh, is coming and present for in authoritarian countries because the not because not because they are capable of controlling the information. But because they're capable of causing us, they're just drowning us in in chaff and ludicrousness mm. and lies that we stop mm. believing anything. And that mm. Will was really, really ahead of his time. Oh, great! Uh, I've been looking for another good audio book, so I'll uh, I'll grab it. That sounds yeah. good. I mean, the even in the conversation around Elon Musk and Twitter and free speech and so on, it, it <clears throat> it's frustrating to me that this is still being characterized as free speech versus not free speech which strikes me as a very sort of 20th century way of looking at things because if the free speech that you're talking about reliably leads to a massive confusion and inarticulate blathering, like if it, if the algorithms are rigged in such a way that they favor for things that are going to exercise us and outrage us or pander to what we already believe, then it makes no sense to talk about a sort of Lockean idea of free speech in the context of technologies that predictably produce bullshit. Right. Yeah, no, totally agree. And, and it's, it's weird that Musk, who I think is a genuinely really smart person, uh, would be so unsophisticated, naive to think, oh, actually what people, they, they, they want these things to be, 
liberated so that there can be more there can be more garbage people can be free to harass people more like is there anyone in the world who 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 wishes the internet was had more harassment and <laughs> you know more lies and more anti-semitic manifestos and and more you know massacres live streamed who wants that who's the person that actually wants that and that's I mean, really the world that they're asking for doesn't it depend what you mean by harassment and what you mean by lies and their concern yeah. would be that yeah. you end up with these very woke 22-year-old software engineers in Silicon Valley riding to work on skateboards and deciding that, you know, I don't know, someone, uh, you know, refusing to put their pronouns in their bio on Twitter is a form of hate speech and therefore they have to be excluded from the platform. For sure. And and I'm not... about regulation. Yes. And I don't... I'm not saying that there's not some semblance of a point there. And I, as a... Like, as a... As a person who's who's you know sort of horrified some of the time at the at the woke young i feel that but but that is that seems to me as a problem as a as a mag on magnitude level of magnitude problem it is is way way below on the richter scale of fucking up the world or screwing (laughs) up the world compared to the this uh to what the 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 hateful uh people are able to do with with their hate i mean we need we need i wish both of them were were constrained but if i can only constrain one of them i'd rather constrain the (laughs) people who are who are the trollish hateful and the bots and the and the you know the russian lies than i would the 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 woke mob yeah how do you feel about your ability to talk freely about these kinds of things on the platforms that you currently have uh like the political gab fest and like at the job that you you currently have you've always sort of prided yourself on being the contrarian uh Mm. with i guess the slate pitchy angle which is uh which is to say the angle that comes uh at at a at an angle to uh (laughs) pardon my misuse of that word but but at an angle to the conventional thinking about things and that's becoming trickier and trickier without suddenly being lumped in as being like oh if you're not saying this then you must be saying this other thing right right well i um i'm there are a lot of things i don't talk about because i don't think i think i would get in trouble and i'm not sure i have a super sophisticated well thought out uh take on them and i'm not i'm not a classically trained brilliant debater uh and so there are things i avoid talking about which i would have talked about 15 years ago because it was a more playful environment it was also an environment where it was you know, it was, you were probably saying things that were hurtful to people who I didn't want to hurt because I was playing around and in certain ways. Um, so there, there's some of that on the gap. The, the bigger point for me is just, I, I don't, I, I host a political podcast. I spend close to zero time thinking about national, international politics because I find it so demoralizing. That's why, I'll, you know, in some sense, it's why I left Slate back in 2014. So eight years ago, I left running a political magazine because I just found the environment so depressing. And I found what was happening in politics, especially national politics, so depressing and so uh, despair inducing that I just didn't want to be part of it. And so I went and went to Atlas Obscura, where I was running a media company that was all about the wonder of the world. And now I'm at a place in CityCast where I'm running a a new 
media company, which is a really locally focused. And I, I think at the local level, there's still a possibility, there's hope, and we are, there's some ability for people to work together and not treat, treat each other as, as uh, instrumental objects of, of, to be loathed and derided, but to actually you know, accomplish things together. And so that's why I, I can't, I, I can't, I can't, I, I show up on the Gabfest. I love talking to John and Emily, my podcasting partners. If I never thought for a minute about American politics again for the rest of my life, that would be fine with me. <laughs> that makes me a little bit sad because I fear that if the David Plotzes of the world retreat, then we're left only with the barbarians. Like, isn't it, isn't it worth playing around and offending some people in the process of seeking to cling on to a public square that is rambunctious and fun and fearless? I mean, sure. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's worth it, but I, I don't know. I'm like, I, <laughs> I just don't I, I'm, I'm an old man. <laughs> I'm 52 years old. I have, you know, I have, I have, uh, I'm just like kind of, trying to get off to into the sunset at this point i've, I've been working for a long time 52 and, you're talking yeah. like it's 85 85 well i kind of feel that way but no but it 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 doesn't um the the there are two different fights right there's a fight for free speech for what for for the rambunctiousness and free speech and offend everyone and like screw the woke mobs and and uh and don't be afraid of cancellation and those are battles that I think are worth, they're nice, they're worth fighting. Uh, I just don't kind of have the, I just don't have the, it's just not, it's just not important. None of them are important enough to me in any given day for me to want to fight those, those fights. And, and then there's the fight against, the thing that's, that I despair about is it's the fight against the, the, the entire integrity of, of the political process, the the rise of authoritarianism, the rise of people like Trump and DeSantis, and the destruction of the basic norms and values that hold our government together. And that is really worth fighting for. And it's really important. And um, I, I am so despairing and disgusted that I, 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 I don't have I don't have the Chris Hayes gene in me or the Josh Marshall gene in me where I can be in that. I'm not a pugnacious person who wants to be in the fight. It's like you kind of have to be, you have to want to fight people all the time. You have to be mm. a bit of an asshole. Maybe you're a bit of an asshole. I don't know. You have mm. to be a bit of an asshole to engage in all that because it's because it's so um, it's so bloody and you're you're popping every every artery. You're 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 blowing the capillaries out, and I don't. I got. I, I would like to hang out with my girlfriend and pet my cat. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't want to be. A bit, I don't want to be a bit of an asshole. But I'd like to believe that if I was in Germany in the 1920s, I'd be a bit of an asshole to the people who were being unreasonable around me, with the hopes of heading off whatever is is coming. Like I don't think you can you can do your duty in uh, in preventing authoritarianism and Trumpian madness without also interrogating the causes of that madness yeah. and that yeah. derangement partly comes from a, a dying like white 
culture, middle-aged culture that feels like it's being assailed from all sides and like it's five-year-old children are being taught that there's no such thing as boys and girls and that, you know, all the, all this kind of stuff. And without kind of getting our arms around the excesses of the left, I don't think we can get our arms around the excesses. But is there anything that you have seen in how the left uh, is fighting Trumpism or the the authoritarian uh, aging white people and the proud boys uh, and the is there anything you've seen that's actually effective if you anything you've seen in how the media is confronting this that is effective that has changed it or not a, like slowed its acceleration or stopped it or reversed it at all I've seen nothing in how the media has has responded to this and the, the, in a way this is kind of this is my answer which is I am choosing to focus on an area where local politics and how we live in cities, where at least it seems like the fights aren't simply between two toxic groups on the, on the extreme, that the fights are, the fights are in, a, in a much more central place. They're much more about how we actually live, not how we talk about how we live, not, how, not rhetoric. They're actually fights about, you know, are we going to build this apartment building, you know, uh, where, how many cops are we going to hire with the city budget? Um, and those, it feels to me like if you can get people to work together in small ways and local situations, that maybe there's some hope that, yeah. that, that that spills out into the larger culture. I just don't see anything like when I watch, when I watch all, there's so much righteous, there's so much righteous energy, correct, righteous energy in the people who are speaking out against the woke mobs in the people who but mostly in the people who are speaking out against trumpism they are absolutely correct about everything and yet has it done anything to change the dynamics of what's happening no well no no the righteousness hasn't but i think that's a function of how bad our media currently is i mean i can imagine a world in which you dialed down the righteousness on both sides by 20 percent and you dialed up the cool kind of uh, bridge-seeking, comedy-seeking, like we're all Americans, there is no red America or blue America, we can agree on these fundamental principles kind of rhetoric. And in occasions like that, I do think you see more unity. So the kind of rhetoric of Obama versus the rhetoric of Trump. In the media sphere, I mean, I would say if you still had a Christopher Hitchens, or I mean, even people, you know, you might hate my saying this, but people like Bill Maher or people like Sam Harris, or even in some cases, Joe Rogan, who are able to talk to people on the other side in a way that lands as being sympathetic, but are then able to point out errors in their thinking or ways who basically just don't enemanize everybody. (laughs) I don't mean give them an enema, but turn them into an enemy. Uh, Then I think you could, I think if you could shift the media a bit away from MSNBC and Fox News and towards like, we're all just trying to muddle through this together. So I kind of understand your fears, but here's where they don't quite work. Then you could do it. But I equally, but then half of me goes, well, you're taking the exact correct uh, approach because there are only so many hours in a Plotzian day. And so I don't know how you're going to move the media behemoth on those big national issues, but you actually can do something on a, on a, a local level. So how does that translate? Like articulate the plot's vision of what you what you're doing with podcasts at a local level and what how that impacts people's lives. Well, for background, I am the CEO of a new company, a newish company called CityCast. And what CityCast is is a network of daily local podcasts and newsletters in 
cities across the U.S. So we're now in in six cities. We'll be in uh, eight in a couple of weeks. Um, Denver, Chicago, Salt Lake City. We're about to be in Boise. We're in Houston. We're about to be in D.C. We're in Pittsburgh. Uh, a bunch of a bunch of U.S. cities. And in each of those cities, we create a daily local podcast that's designed to help you as a citizen of Denver uh, feel more connected to Denver, Colorado. You, you're going to learn something about what's happening in the city and you're going to, you're going to hear, you know, a good, a good take on what's happening in, with uh, the development of this park or with uh, the, you know, you know, the, the new crackdown on restaurants or some things that are both extremely trivial and things that are both and things that are extremely serious. Um, you know, the, traffic, development, uh, the mayor, corruption, what, what we're eating, uh, uh, you know, the great festival that's happening, the sports teams, all of those things are what we're doing. And the, the theory of the case, I mean, it's mostly it's the theory of the case is I'm trying to build a great new media business as part of a, and that will make a profit for its, its owners. Um, but it's, when I think about why I'm trying to do it, it's bec- it's this reason that we talked about, which is that the the it's very hard for people to have any kind of conversation with people who they are not in their homogenous n- near narrow group these days. But one place where people seem to be able to do it a little bit better than others is in local issues, because you, while you tend to live near people who are like you, people who are like you are it's it's not fully we are we are not completely fully geographically sorted you actually have some variety of human beings in in cities and and so there are a lot of issues and the issues don't break down on on traditional red blue lines the way almost everything else in american politics breaks down on red blue lines they break down on on lines are you pro development or anti development are you a car person or a bike person are you a uh, a person who is like uh, uh, you know you're what kind of consumer are you? And these are issues where 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 there are definitely fights, and the the fights are as as heated as they are around anything else. But they are ultimately fights which which are about real ways of living and real things that people deal with. You know, is the school should my school uh, have a masking requirement or not? Is something that affects my child every minute. Um, and, and so I find there is, there is a kind of relish and joy to me in con- confronting this. And I think that we, it makes people, it makes people better citizens of their city to, to hear these conversations that we're having. And ultimately, if we can do that and do that in city after city after city, maybe we slightly change, uh, we slightly change the the culture and the politics that we're living in. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, it is it it's a it's a noble counter to the increasing nationalization of our political consciousness, where so much more of our attention is paid to things that yeah. are completely abstracted yeah. from our daily lives than used to be the case. And in some yeah. ways, I wonder if that's actually the hope. I was I was talking to Tyler Cowan, the economist, and he's really optimistic. Like he's so refreshingly optimistic and about, <laughs> about everything. He's like a little kid, you know. He's just like, ah, oh, you know, America's great. America's always been great. We'll be fine. Um, but you know, part of what he, part of his argument about why he doesn't think that social media is gonna gonna cause all these problems that I I fear, 
is he's like most people just don't care i mean most people are just not not that online most people don't use it that much and they're certainly not online in the way that the twitter you know elite like we are online and so all of this woke stuff has peaked all of the you know the argy barging and like you know this is actually something that Yes, it's increased from 50 years ago. People, the amount to which people are hostile towards their neighbors because of with their blue or red. But in reality, most people just go out and they mow the lawn and they say hi to their neighbors. And that's still the basic reality of people's lives. So I suppose to whatever extent you can foster that, you're, you're doing a good job. Yeah, I think, I think the, the, the counterpoint to what I just said and to what you just said is that that increasingly actually the people who live next door to you are like you, that there's been this geographical sorting. Right. So people are moving to be around people who are like themselves. And, and so that's a, that is a problem. Um, but I'm glad to hear that Tyler's, I, I love Tyler. He's, he's, he's (laughs) such a delightful person to occasionally gone out to dinner with him in, DC. He's he's one of these people who really makes you love the city you live in. He lives in in DC or around DC, mm. and he is he's the greatest um, investigator of restaurants in Washington. Mm. He's he an always, amazing foodie as well, isn't he? He's yeah, written yeah. a book about Washington DC food, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. He took me to like restaurants that I never would have found otherwise, which were like not necessarily the best restaurants, but were so interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, you mentioned COVID masking. How have you found the uh, the the pandemic? It's been a bit bemusing, you know, it, in spite of all of the kind of Fox News hysteria about Australia having been turned into a totalitarian dictatorship last year. Um, the reality on the ground has has been, with the exception of uh, of one three month lockdown, most of Australia. And I always have to add the big caveat that Melbourne chose to go to go a different direction because the Victorian government was hyper cautious, so they endured really hard hard lockdowns. But most of it, for most of Australia, we weren't masking and we weren't locked down, and schools weren't closed, and daycares were open, and shopping centres were open. And you know, in February of twenty twenty one, when there was no vaccines yet, I was going to, I went to Hamilton in Sydney with two thousand other people because there was no virus. And so, in some ways, like I think I heard you say on the Gabfest recently that you just went back to work for the first time in the office. Could that be true? Well. It's true, but that's not it's not because of COVID. It's because I started a company that's fully remote because right in a whole bunch of different cities. I see, I see. Okay, but I mean, I've heard from several people in the states, like, oh, we're just starting to go back to work, or the kids are just starting to go back to school, or we're still arguing over whether or not the kids should be wearing masks. And with you know, we went Australia went in a very binary way. Either we were staying inside doing nothing, or we were basically living life normally. Mm-hmm. And America didn't have that luxury, so it's kind of oozed its way through the pandemic. And I wonder what your diagnosis of how that went is. Well, not not good. <laughs> not good, Josh. <laughs> there are a million dead Americans. It seems like we would have been at like had, you know, seven hundred thousand, you know, three three hundred thousand people will be alive had we handled it better. But um, yeah, in general, if you, actually, if you could have done what Australia did, and there are lots of caveats, of course, but if you could have done, then 900,000 people would be alive because the death rate is... Yeah, yeah I mean, our, there's, there's so many reasons why we were unable to do it. And I think uh, there are so many reasons. There's so, there's so many reasons. Some of them are political, like that 
people, because everything is so polarized, people intrinsically just didn't decided not to trust the 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 state. Um, and there's this extremely perverse idea of what freedom is in the United States that I would have thought would be prevalent in Australia. And I'm actually because Australia is in so many ways is like has it has so much of the same kind of freedom. Yeah. Outlaw DNA that the US has, but I don't know why you guys, why did you guys not have that? It's been an interesting test. It has really revealed what I've always suspected about Australia, which is that Australians are very obedient. We have a, like we've sold to the world this crocodile Dundee frontier uh, myth, but actually we feel deep down like uh, a, a lonely lost people on the wrong side of the planet from our forebears. And um, have always struggled with our position geographically in the world and our anxiety about being swamped by the ye- yellow peril from the north. And I think that feeds a bit into the national character of, um, you know, speed limits are very low here. They're very tightly enforced. People like that. People like, uh, you know, people like places closing early and not being noisy. Australians are quite sort of, you know, we're a highly urbanized country. So almost all of us live in just a handful of big cities. And, uh, and we, we get along politely. We're quite Canadian in that in that sort of way, or New Zealand, I guess. There's not there's there's not much of the don't tread on me. There's much more of a, an egalitarian sense of we're all in this together. I mean, it even shows up in war. Like I was reading a dispatch from World War One where the Americans and the Brits were remarking on how much Australians treated this as a as a communal effort and like we're all in this together and we're doing this for the homeland and we're doing this for the queen and the Brits were like the queen like you're on the wrong side of the world than the queen but like you tell it, wasn't, them, the, it wasn't the queen then it was man. the king, was the king. <laughs> the king. you tell you them guys all. were so you were so far behind the times that you were like, <laughs> we still still, feel, still for queen victoria victoria was still in power uh you know but you tell a person to do it for king and country and an aussie kind of does it whereas an american will be like you know who's bloody king uh i, I think there's just some of that and so when it came time to like we're all gonna do this together and we're gonna do this thing then we were less inclined to be like, ah, but, 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 but is it exactly necessary? Do I absolutely need to stay inside? Why can I do this but not that? There was a, a lot more just like, you know what, the rules are probably stupid at the at the edges, but on the whole, it's probably worth all of us just knuckling down and putting up with some shit and eating shit for a while, and then it'll be better for everybody because uh, we're all in this together. There was just more of a communal thing. Damien Cave had an interesting piece in the New York Times. Here's the, uh, here's the New York Times Australian Bureau Chief. Uh, about a week or two ago, which would be worth your reading about his analysis of what the difference was. And he sort of puts it down to to trust, to greater yeah. trust. Yeah, Australians yeah. are more trusting yeah. and they're more egalitarian. They're more, we call it mateship here, like a sense of egalitarian yeah. uh, communal sensibility. And I think yes. that's, that's yeah. the and that sometimes that's a bad thing because I think we would be much more easily herded into concentration camps if if that ever happened. We wouldn't be pulling up our AR-15s and shooting at the at the authorities. Uh, but from from in most situations, I think it's a good trait. That's that's interesting. I mean, it is it is remarkable how little trust there is in institutions in the U.S. right now, and in all in all essentially all institutions except maybe the military, um, and that's been that's been a kind of a willful part of it is like a willful act on the part of republicans to undermine trust in government it's been an, it's been an actual 
policy to undermine the trust in in the federal government in particular uh, that has been pursued by Republican the Republican Party. But then it's you know there are a lot of other reasons why mm. it's happening. And yeah, we're we're very un, untrusting and. Yep. I wonder if see this comes, this comes back to like the trying to fight the fight for reason versus the versus hysteria and passion. There there does seem to be just more more to distrust in America on all sides. I mean, I'm thinking of masking now. Like I was talking to a friend of mine in LA who was saying that when he's waiting to pick up his kids from daycare outside on a sunny day in Los Angeles, he gets so much shit if he's not wearing a mask. Like they're standing six feet apart from each other, the the parents and the other parents like get it shit, scream at him. I, I don't even, mask. that is, that is not a true story or it's not a true story <laughs> of for today. Maybe that was, there may have been a it moment. Was, it was about four months ago. Yeah. There may have been a moment where there was some truth to that, but you, 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 you don't need you don't need it and, it, and you don't need it and the mask you ma- masking has like has has almost vanished even right. now there's a huge surge in the u.s right now everyone mm. everyone has has whatever it is the the new that new, new omicron omicron new yeah. new and improved yeah but nobody's paying any attention it doesn't matter no, nobody's masking anywhere it doesn't it's not that is yes there was a time and where where people were people were truly unpleasant and self-righteous about it but that time has passed yeah um, okay this was i think it was november because it would have been before i came to the to the states most recently uh yeah that i'm just making the point that there are there are there are rules that get imposed that people regard as being rigid that actually if you were a little bit more flexible about that you probably wouldn't provoke such a backlash from people who distrust institutions yeah and the i mean the masking one was particularly bad because there wasn't because people were wearing bad masks. Yeah. They weren't actually wearing masks that were helping them. And there wasn't, there was so little sort of acknowledgement that, that there were, I don't know, it was just, it was just so badly handled. And I thought mm. with schools, it was truly maddening as a parent of, of a child in public school is just how bad that whole return to school the 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 failure to acknowledge that masking and the and remote learning were devastating for tons of kids and really bad for tons of kids and the the lying about that um, was was infuriating and how did the return to school work for you? Well, for my uh, I had one kid who was at a private school that but a very kind of progressive private school that did return but returned kind of slowly but the, my kid who was in public school. Uh, it took a really long time to go back. When they went back, it was with with uh, tons of masking requirements, but they seemed basically arbitrary because there was no requirement about a particular kind of mask. They didn't really do anything to improve the air filtration. So it was sort of like, well, why are you, why is this so important and these other things are not that important? And um, And it just, I don't know. It was just frustrating that that I don't have nothing cogent to say about this anymore. I'm sorry, Josh. I've, I I I spent like a year being angry about it, and a year just, just being so just upset being... that people weren't like that. People just didn't think about the cost that there. Of course, there was a huge health cost of not uh, uh, of 
when you let kids back in school, there was a risk they were going to get COVID. There was risk to teachers, risk to everyone's family, et cetera. But this, this, it took so long for people to acknowledge, oh, there's an enormous cost that we as a society are going to bear in 10, 20 years when these kids are less educated. Mm. When we've, you know, all these kids who, who just got lost from the school system, who dropped out of school and no one ever tracked them down and who missed, you know, months or years of learning. And that that cost was not factored in because while we were being so cautious about COVID and we weren't even good about COVID. And so we weren't even effective about COVID either. <laughs> so it was, it's, it's just been, it's been, um, I'm not saying that I had tremendous, uh, huge faith in American institutions. And I was sure we were going to get all of this right. Um, but I, we've underperformed even against my fairly low expectations. I remember Tyler, speaking of Tyler Callen, Tyler wrote this article right at the beginning of pandemic, which was, oh, the U.S. always has deals the same things. They start really badly, but they get, they use their tremendous industrial capacity and capacity to organize and capacity to science, scientific capacity to, to conquer any, anything like this. It's the same as World War II, World War I, uh, the Cold War, you name it. We, 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 that's how we mobilize and get, get stuff done and ultimately we'll, we will prevail. And yeah, I mean, sure, there were vaccines developed and sure there's some drugs developed and that's all well and good, but man, the, 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 the toll of death, the uh, toll to the economy, the toll to social trust does not, it doesn't feel like this has been a great triumph of America, even mm. though we have some vaccines. Yeah, I mean, a friend of mine on the on the death toll on America's death toll. A friend of mine said it'll be it'd be interesting to actually know how many of those people in Australia have died since in the past two years just because they were very old. Hmm. Like, not that not that it's worthless, right. but like we locked them up for a couple of years so that they'd be safe. How right. many of the million people who died right. in America were within two years of dying from natural causes? Like, well. Quite possibly half. I don't know. Yes, but if you, if you, yeah, maybe. But the elevate. I mean, the, the the amount of excess death in the world is pretty high, which suggests it's not, and it's been pretty high for That's two true. years. That suggests it's not just like old oh, people who are going to die anyway have died. It's like all these other people who didn't need to have died have died. Which is yeah, that's true. It'd be interesting excess. to see if there's a decline in excess death in the next year. Yeah. Like no, that would there, be super. Was there a culling yeah. of people who were going to die this year? Right, right, right. And maybe, yeah. maybe it was all good. Maybe we've saved society billions and billions <laughs> of dollars that now can be invested to. I mean, it, I don't think I wouldn't colonize say Mars. I think uh, Louis C.K. has a joke, and uh, insert all of the necessary caveats about that man's uh, moral uh, moral standing. But he has a joke about COVID, saying, uh, "You know what? A t what a terrible thing! Uh, an awful lot of people who were just about to die did not keep on living." <laughs> which is a cruel way of putting it, but is uh, generally largely true. But if you look at the demographics of people uh, who succumb to COVID, um, the other, it's the spoken, last spoken like a spoken like a man who did not lose any close friends or relatives to COVID. Though. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that's a point that I also make as well. When people keep attacking me online for being an apologist for Australian totalitarianism, I, you know, I make the point that. My seventy-eight-year-old father, who has uh, who has chronic uh, pulmonary disease, is alive, and in many parts of the world, including the states, there would be a decent chance that he wouldn't be alive uh, anymore. And then, of course, they come back and say, "Oh, talk about a counterfactual! You can't you can't prove that he would have died if he wasn't in Australia." 
to which I say, I hope you've never used a condom or worn a seatbelt or taken an anti-malarial drug or anything else that doesn't have 100% prevention because it's the same principle, like on a population-wide basis, if you look at the data, it's much likelier to have died. Um, the, the last thing I'll say about COVID and, and lockdowns and so on is that the, the edges of state force always feel arbitrary. And so when you ask why Australians put up with I guess the the sort of communal sacrifices that had to be made to avoid the epidemic from getting too out of control here until we were vaccinated. I think the answer is partly that there was more patience for the recognition that the edges of state force are arbitrary, whereas there was much more... When I was in the States in December and January, a lot of people were pouncing on the, yeah, but why can I do this, but I can't do that? Why can I do that, but I can't do this? Like there were videos going viral of a woman who was in quarantine in Australia and they had these uh, these kind of outback bungalows where people who had to spend two weeks would be located. And she's on her veranda at this in this bungalow, and there are people in PPE, uh, like essentially enforcing that you can't leave the quarantine facility. And there's a line drawn on her balcony between one bungalow and the next bungalow. And she's saying to them, she's filming on her video on her camera, and she's saying to them, "So you mean I can stand here?" but it would be a threat to Australia if I just crossed that line. They're like, yes, you'll be fine if you cross that line. She's like, what difference does it make? I'm mm-hmm. outside. Like, why don't can I stand here, but I can't stand there? It's all bullshit. And this went viral in the States and lots of people saying, yes, this is totalitarianism. This is crazy. But of course, the same argument can be made if you're driving at 49 miles an hour versus 51 miles right. an hour. Right. At some right. point, you make the boundary. And when the state has right. to impose the blunt rule of force on people, it's not fun. And right. it's, it seems arbitrary. Nobody likes confronting the the brutal force of the of the state. And when that force has to be invoked for some greater good, it's it's nasty at the edges and it's ugly. But those edges only exist so that this vast other good can be achieved, which is that we don't have a million people dying. Anyway, that's the the last cherry on top I'll put on the Australian COVID experience. Um, is cherry on top an Australian phrase too? I don't think, well, we say it here, but I don't think we came up with it, did we? I don't know. It's, it seems to me such like such a quintessential American phrase because <laughs> the cherry is a very American fruit and you put it on top. It's like a thing you put on an ice cream sundae. And we I inherit, I we inherit it a very lot. American. We inherit a lot from you. I'm sure it's American. Last night we were watching a cooking show and my partner, Sean, someone on the on the show said, oh, it was like a deer in the headlights. And Sean said, why the fuck what, would Australians what, say a deer in the deer? Headlights? <laughs> no, Sean's American, so he's like, why are Australians saying deer? Like, there aren't any deer here. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. Should is there be- some equivalent for kangaroo? Well, it's kangaroo like a- it would be, I mean, the kangaroos do exactly the same thing, so you could say it was a kangaroo in the headlights, but it just doesn't have the same ring. Although, now that I now that you've, now that that you've we've come upon this, next time I'm in the States, I'm just going to drop that as being that like... Would be, it would be good. You might, it might be infectious. Yeah. The, uh, do kangaroos do that? Yeah. Yeah, they have the same kind of thing. Like getting stuck. So, so, so Australian roads are littered with yes, with dead kangaroos. Dead kangaroos. Yes, do and they, they, do they? they ha- I mean, they do people harvest crazy. them and eat them? Then, I mean, would you? Well, there, there's a whole move in in the U.S. Like, there's some food banks that will get reports of roadkill and they'll go and dress the deer and save that deer for save the meat at least, so wow. that some of it can be preserved. Not not the part that's been in contact with tarmac and stuff right but but the 
preservable stuff. And I wondered if there was some similar. In well, I have some news for you, Plotsy. Australia is quite hot. So by the time you get, and it's very large, yeah. by the time you got to the kangaroo, I don't think you'd want to be eating that meat. Hmm. But they, okay. we do eat kangaroo meat. Uh, we do, we do, I do eat wild kangaroo a couple of times, uh, about once every other week. Um, Is it and, good? What does it taste yeah, like? It tastes like venison, <laughs> believe it or not. They, they evolved in, a, in parallel, like while Australia was off doing its thing and it had split off from all of the other continents uh, at first, the reason it has such weird mammals is because there was this kind of parallel evolution where there were very very similar evolutionary forces being imposed on like tiny little little tiny little mammals from which we all evolved uh you know that started flourishing after the dinosaurs died and then they just grew into sort of different weird bizarro world versions of other things so the the kangaroo is kind of a deer just adapted in a different way it has a lot of the same behaviors and a lot of the same taste oh yeah all right there you go there you go. Your Australia um, Today lesson. Yeah, exactly. Uh, climate change is another thing I just wanted to quickly touch on. Um, what role does it, I mean, where do, what space does it occupy in your head on a daily basis? Oof. Well, I have three children. And it, so it is, it is, it doesn't occupy much space on a daily basis, except obviously when it gets really hot. And I think, well, that's because of this or when when the hurricane is descending on on the place that I want to go vacation. I think about it in that sense. Um, but mostly I just I think about my poor children and I think about how lucky they will be compared to all these other children in the world who probably will not have to have the same resources that they have. Um, I. It's another area where uh, where I feel deeply hopeless in the sense that America has has done such a, a really poor job confronting it, and where the 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 battle to to switch to a carbon neutraler economy seems to have been completely abandoned, um, but. I don't know. I guess I'm optimistic. I do. I am optimistic that that there will be there will be technological advances that will make this somewhat less bad than the the doomsayers tell us it's going to be. Mm. Um, I, I have some hope that technology is just going to get us far enough that it's obviously going to be catastrophic. And I think your country is probably totally hosed. But um, <laughs> thanks. But but I don't know that the whole world, I, I, you know, there are parts of the world that are going to be unlivable. Most of Australia will be unlivable. You know, places like Bangladesh, parts of India, lots of parts of parts of in the equatorial bands. But but I'm not sure that. Um, yeah, I guess I guess yeah. I don't think civilization is going to end. No, 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 me, me neither. I'm not even sure that 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 much of the world is going to become unlivable uh, technologically. I mean, if you could get if renewables keep getting as much better as they have in the past generation into the into subsequent generations, uh, you know, air conditioning is useful and heating is useful as well. You just got to find a way to create the energy for it. I mean, the main thing that I worry about, having just endured horrendous, relentless, unseasonable rain and floods for and having not had a summer, and then 
two summers before that having just been burnt to a crisp by the most horrendous bushfires and the whole skies being so grey. I mean, even the ferries on Sydney Harbour had to be cancelled because you couldn't see in front of you. It was like a 19th century pea super where like there was ash just raining down. On I would get up in the morning and I'd have to turn on the windscreen wipers and hose it down because the car was just coated in ash. Like mm-hmm. that is not a life. Like if that happens every few years, man, I don't want to live... Like, who wants to live that life? Who wants to live a life where it is just pouring with rain and constantly wet and then it's just burning hot and, and you know, smoke everywhere and choking and coughing? We were wearing masks before the pandemic in Sydney. We, were, we started wearing masks two months before the pandemic because of the ash. Oh, my God. Like, we'd already bought the, we'd already bought the N95 masks and then all of a sudden the macro particles turned into micro particles and instead of bits of burning trees, we had little virus particles to keep out. But... Like that's the kind of thing that I worry about with my kids. It's less like is civilization going to collapse? I don't, I don't think it will. But yeah, what do you? But, but but aren't there parts? I would have thought there are parts of Australia where it is because of whatever the wet bulb temperature is going to be. There will be people literally. Well, there already are outside. There already are. Yeah. I mean, there already are parts of Australia and parts of like Death Valley in America and places where it's, you know, routinely 50 degrees Celsius. But, or like, you know, but one parts degree. where people live in huge numbers and maybe not as maybe it's not true in Australia, but in India, I'm sure there are parts where people live in huge numbers where it will get so hot during heat yeah. waves. That I mean, people yeah, will yes. die by yeah, the millions during heat waves. So like, I think what happens is. I think what happens is that instead of a heat wave killing X number of people, if the heat wave is two degrees warmer, then it kills Y number of people and that's more people. But I don't think you have to, I mean, it's like the dust bowl in the American West in the depression. I don't think there's ever a, a, a an, inf- an inflection point that is uh, noticeable enough that everybody actually packs up and leaves necessarily. I mean, maybe you end up with wasteland cities, but I think it's likelier that people just grin and bear it and they become cities with high fatality rates during extreme weather events. That's what I suspect. Um, well, yeah. anyway, all right. That's pretty, cheerful. Pretty, Let's talk about something. Mm-hmm. Let's wrap with something more interesting, which I think is your experience as a public person. Um, you probably didn't expect that you would become like a quote-unquote celebrity when you were a, a journalist, but the political gabfest has has completely gone off, and and is now this little this little jewel in the crown uh, for the three of you. Do do you? When did you realize that the gabfest was was a hit hit? I think it it was it was a slow slow boil because when we began we didn't think anyone listened to it we didn't realize anyone listened to it at all Not, none of us even listened to podcasts ourselves for the first couple of years we did it I think it was when it was actually when Stephen Colbert called me one day on a on a it was a Friday afternoon during I can't even remember which campaign it was. Um, maybe the 2011 presidential campaign or something, 2011 build up to the presidential campaign. And he called, we'd, we'd posted the Gab Fest. We usually posted it on Thursday evening, but we posted it on Friday morning for some reason because we were late. And he, he got my number and called me and, and playfully chewed me out and said, how I can't even have my staff meeting unless I've listened to the Gab Fest. And it wasn't up. What are you doing, Plots? And I realized, like, oh, my God. Like, the person I most admire in the world of entertainment is such a super fan that he's tracking down my my number and, like, <laughs> demanding that we release the podcast for him early. And I thought, well, that's that's something. That's a thing. Mm. Um, so it was, it was. It took a few years. But it's – I don't know if you found this. I mean, you're, you, you certainly are a podcaster, and so you probably have. But – 
you only get positive feedback on a podcast because the people who don't like it just don't, they just <laughs> don't listen to it. So it's unlike other forms of media where people come across it. Like you don't really right. stumble across a podcast and then become uh, a listener or something like where you might with radio, like you might oh, be somewhere nice. in a radio yeah. playing ambiently. So you only have, this is why so many people start podcasts and never stop them. It's because they think the, everyone the, loves them. It's actually just yeah, yeah. people who choose to. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and so with the GabFest, we've created something which it's fortunately it's not 18 people who love us, but it's nor is it like 18 million. It's somewhere between 18 and 18 million. And um and it's it's the perfect level. I well, I, I don't know what level of fame it is. It's not much fame, but it's the perfect for me, it's the perfect level is that People, uh, you know, once once every couple of days, I will be speaking somewhere and I'm speaking out in the world and someone will hear my voice and they will recognize me and they'll say something nice because they have nothing because they're a podcast listener. They only right. listen to podcasts they like. And so they like my podcast. And that's perfect. It's great. And I don't have any other any other harassment. And it's hmm. clear. Like the other thing about podcasts is. Uh, and again, I'm sure you know this is that it's this intimate emotional medium and people mm. feel personally connected and they feel personally connected to me and John and Emily. And, and it is a meaningful emotional relationship that they have with us. And that feels really good mm. to, to I'm, I'm so much happier. I, I, of course I'd like to be a great educator and be someone who has an idea which changes the world. And, and that would be great. I would, that would be really nice, but I don't have that. And what, instead what I have is like a, I have lots of people who felt slightly better. They felt slightly less lonely in the world. They felt slightly more part of a kind of conversation in the world uh, than they would have otherwise. And that is extremely gratifying. That That's emotional nice. connection yeah. that you have made with people and that you get to do, you get to make with them all. Yeah. Every week. Yeah. It's also nice not having your face being noticed a lot, isn't yes. it? Especially when your face looks like mine. That is definitely true. <laughs> but I just mean, like, you know, I don't know if you get it at, like, I find that airport yeah. staff or, like, airline staff or, like, healthcare professionals, I'm not sure why, but I guess any time when someone has to look at your ID and look at your name, then do they sometimes go, oh, plots, oh, are you from the, are you from the Gabfest? Anyway, I find that happens to me. They go, oh, Zeps, oh, you're the, you're, you know, whereas they wouldn't necessarily hear notice my voice or that and they might know my my face but i'll be going to get a you know a, a covid test or something like that and they'll yeah. and they'll recognize the name and that's nice to know that you to just feel yeah. like you're in these people's lives as you say and that you're like woven into the fabric of their everyday existence i don't have the the benefit that you have of only having podcast fans because i have a radio show as well and i make the mistake of going on other people's podcasts like joe rogan's and stuff like that so most of my uh most of my social media interactions are still hostile but <laughs> I, my social media interactions are definitely hostile but my personal reaction interactions yeah are okay. yeah no um it's you, you like me we have this name at the similar level of ludicrousness with that yeah, that's right that z, anyone else like, <laughs> like a z that doesn't like why is there a z yes do we yes. really have to have a z yeah um <laughs> and uh it just looks kind of silly but it's nice it's very it's like very distinctive yeah yeah it's i mean it's certainly better than having that equivalent level of fame on your face 
where like mm-hmm. you would have to sit around like if you're on yeah i just think it's you don't want people staring at you all the time uh, david, that is true david it's uh it's wonderful to catch up with you again um i love uh, i love just skittering around your brain in uh, in wayward in a wayward fashion uh will you stay around for for first date questions where i can pepper you with uh, quick raw shark questions and i'd love to this was so fun josh thank you terrific uh well if you are if you're not a subscriber uh tune in for the next episode and if you are a subscriber let's get started with the first eight questions what's the best year of your life so far oh gosh um gosh gosh hard uh you know 2021 was really great i know you're not allowed to say that (laughs) what it what really gr- the world really has agreed great. that that was the worst year. That was the I know, worst but year. For me, it was, I started a new business that I'm loving creating. I, I have, uh, my kids are in a good place. Um, I have come out of a really sort of sad period following my divorce. I had a girlfriend who's making me very happy. Um, yeah. And it's like a re and the, I think the, the, the kind of the crucible of this, divorce and the collapse of my marriage, the sort of unexpected collapse of my marriage really made me sort of value and see things I hadn't seen and be aware of things I hadn't been aware of. And that was great. Was 2020 the worst? Actually, 2019 was the worst. The, was that the divorce year? That was, the, that was the sort of year everything fell apart. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. I won't ask you about it because this is technically first date questions, but I'm sure I could have gotten some. No, I, I used to talk calls. about it on first dates all the time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Who's, who's my first date move? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I look. I hope I never go through that. It sounds absolutely awful. Um, what's the best? What's the most beautiful view you've ever seen? Uh, most beautiful view I have ever seen is. Uh, Gosh, uh, um, um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. This is like such a, this is such a profound question. Um, uh, oh my gosh. Wow. Uh, I was just in Sicily and climbed up. Uh, from Taormina, which is a town in Sicily, to this town oh. that hangs on a cliff above it. And that view was the most beautiful thing. The, the path along there was the most beautiful thing. Oh, no, the most beautiful view, It's uh, there's a hill in Vermont. My, my family has a house in Vermont, and there's a hill with an avenue of maple trees that overlooks the town of Cabot, Vermont, that is the most beautiful spot on the earth. How lovely. Yeah, I went to Sicily in December for the first time. So beautiful. Sorry I missed so you there. Beautiful. Were you there in December? No. Hmm. I was there in May. Close enough. Uh, and uh, best ice cream flavor? Uh, mint chocolate chip. Worst? Um, strawberry. <laughs> where are you going to go on your... Well, where would you go on your next holiday if you could? Uh, where would I go on my next holiday? I would go to... Um, Australia, actually, if, mm. if it wasn't so damn far away, I would go. I, it's, it's just like we don't get you. 
Yeah. I want to, I, if I, I need two weeks to do it and I, I never get two weeks. Just take them. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You need two weeks and ideally you need to talk to me about uh, frequent flyer miles because doing it in, in business is so much, or you need to splurge on business because doing it, you, if you're only going to do two weeks, you have to be in business class so you can sleep. You don't want to get off an economy class flight for 22 hours and then have to be fresh because then it wipes out the next three days. Good. Good to know. All right. Yeah. Uh, what TV shows did you watch as a kid? I watched, um, well, it depends what kid age. Johnny Sacco and his robot. That was a, that was a big favorite. I watched um, Hill Street Blues. When my, my, that was the first adult show I ever got to watch was Hill Street Blues. I loved that show. Watched The Cosby Show. Watched um, I, the, facts, the Facts of Life. Loved The Facts of Life. Family Ties. Mm. Classic NBC shows. Yeah, right. Uh, what do you not care about that other people do? care about that other people do um cars <laughs> yeah that's good uh if you could send a, a letter to yourself in the past uh what age would you send it to and what what would you say and you can't do you know lottery numbers and stock picks and stuff like that um probably to the uh just the the sort of um 18 year old 17 18 year old david plotz and tell him um, like there are lots of girls who are like, who'll be interested in you and you just like, just don't be, get so worked up over it. Hit on girls, sleep with girls, like spend more time with girls and don't like, don't agonize over it as much as you're agonizing over it. Oh, that's nice. Uh, you get to change one law. What law do you change? Maybe, uh, um, is this one law I would make the United States parliamentary democracy instead of a, <laughs> instead of whatever the system yeah. we have is? I've heard you bang on about that. Such a fan of the parliamentary democracy. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll grant that. It's not really a law. It's more like overhauling the entire constitution of the United if States. Not, I've, I had one, if I had one, I've been, uh, oh, well, I, it was the same thing. It was like. I was going to say popular election of the president, but that says the same problem. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, what's the most underrated city? Uh, Medellin, Colombia. Wow. Great. Okay. Fantastic city. So fantastic. That's an excellent answer because it's also despoiled by the reputation from the drug wars, but now all the cool kids know it's cool. Yeah, that's true. It's almost, it's not underrated anymore is the problem. No, that's right. Yeah. It's like severely overrated. Uh, Cleveland is pretty great too. Love really? Cleveland. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, last uh, last first date question. If you get to live to, you might even have done this as a conundrum question on the on the Gabfest. I'm not sure, but you get to live to 100 and you get to either keep your your body or your mind as you had it when you were 30. Wait, and then the other goes to goes to. 100. The other goes, however, 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 fate is going to take it. You know, I would have given a different answer. Well, a, I don't want to live to be a hundred. I would have given a different answer. My father has dementia, and um, and there's no nothing worse than that. The taking of the mind in that way, and his body is okay, and his mind is gone, and it's mm. just terrible. So I would take my mind, even though. Um, yeah. Even though I'm, I, I don't think I would. Have, I think I would have answered that differently ten years ago. Interesting. 
Yeah, needless to say, Tyler Cowan had the same answer. Keep the mind. Uh, what stage of dementia is your dad at? My dad's got Alzheimer's uh, as well. He's, uh, I mean, I don't know. He has Alzheimer's and he has it bad enough that he doesn't, he isn't, doesn't know, he has no proper nouns. He right. can't care for himself. He's in, he's in care and mm-hmm. um, he's happy and he's not uncomfortable, but it's just so sad yeah. to see this man who was so brilliant and so engaged with the world and, and to see all of that lost is mm. the worst. Does he know you? He knows I'm a person of importance to him, but he doesn't know who I am, really. Mm. Does your dad know you? Yes, dad's in the early stages, so I'm always interested. Uh, dad, does he know? Does he know he has it? Yeah, he knows. He jokes about it. Um, he's always been. He's an actor, and he was a comedian, so he's uh, you know he teases <laughs> himself about it. Uh, and uh, he still lives with mum. He doesn't need round the clock care, although that's getting you know difficult. Um, and he's a beloved, uh, person to Australians of a certain age. He was in a sitcom in the eighties. Uh, so it's, you know, it's just an interesting thing to, to see. He still very much knows us, but he's, you know, he can no, yeah, sorry. No, no, finish. Sorry. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say he can no longer, uh, get through a complicated conversation or really a conversation that, you know, he can no longer follow the thread of multiple thoughts. So like his, his intellect has, has now become trapped in, uh, and you'll remember this, I'm sure from when your father began, that it has become trapped in single loops of noticing things or remark, remarking upon things with no capacity to then build upon logical ideas. Right. Well, I recommend, it's terribly sad, but I would recommend that you read the book In Love by Amy Bloom. Okay. Do you know about this book? It's no, a, I know. It's Amy a, it's a mem- yeah. he, she, she's a wonderful American novelist and essayist, but it's about her husband's Alzheimer's and his ultimately his um, his suicide. Uh, but it... Oh, yes, right. Yeah, I read a review of this. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced I have a lot of Alzheimer's in my family, so I'm have fear the worst for myself. Um, and I just think all the time, like, how am I, how can I avoid this? How can I avoid it for myself and avoid it? More importantly, avoid it. My mother is suffering so much. Mm. I hope that your mother doesn't end up suffering similarly. My mother suffered so much from Mm. what's happened with my father. And, um, I'm sure my father would never want it. I, I, I just want to off myself as soon Mm. as I can. It's interesting, isn't it, to think about what would those criteria be? Like, how would you set advanced protocols um, to yeah. even, I mean, even if it were legal, I mean, assume that you can go to Switzerland or something or, and do it, but, you know, or, you know, how, how would you define in advance what the trigger is? Yeah, I, I tried to do that. I just was writing my will and I tried to get this written into my will and I just couldn't figure out how to do it. There's no legal way to do it in the U.S. There's nothing, it's, there's, it's really, really hard to, figure out how to make it happen. And Amy Bloom, this book has a lot about how difficult it is in the U S to kill yourself and they go to Switzerland. Um, but even in Switzerland, it's no, it's no picnic. Um, really? So no, it's ton, it requires tons of planning and you have to have, you have to have pretty high mental capacity. And most people, by the time they kind of plan it and, and people who with Alzheimer's plan it and and 
they've reached the point when they're ready for it. They are actually have such diminished capacity that they are no longer allowed to do it. Yeah. Right. So yeah. It's, you have to have enough capacity to, to be to, able to, to carry knowingly. it out yourself yeah. knowingly and be responsible for it. Uh, and most people with dementia just don't yeah. remain, don't maintain that capacity. I for thought there was, I would thought there were some jurisdictions like the Netherlands where you could do an advanced directive and then you no longer had to be corpus mentis when you pulled the trick, when someone pulled the trigger for you, but I could be wrong. I mean, either way you could always do it under the table. I, I know. A I think you, I think there are places where you have to be a citizen of those countries. Oh, I don't okay. think, I think the tourism is, is I see. Yeah. where it gets tricky. Right. Right. I mean, I know a family who, who's, you know, they'd had the same family doctor for, all their lives and the family doctor was willing to do it when back when it was illegal here. Um, and they just came over to the house. Uh, so that is also, you know, doing it illegally, I suppose is an option. I think once I, once I ceased to be able to name anyone who I loved, I think, yeah, that would probably be the point on that sunny Um, note. (laughs) On that sunny note. First, what a great first date. You, You must be great on a date. (laughs) <laughs> it's a good thing I'm married, David. Uh, don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> can you just imagine just getting up? Uh, uh, can you get the check? I'm feeling a little bit, uh, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling bad now about killing myself. Do you mind just picking up this? Uh, I'll call you, right? We'll do this again. We'll do this again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Anytime. Uh, all right. <laughs> Thank you, David. Great to talk. Thanks, Josh. See you. Bye-bye. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.